Good morning. Let us remember the words of Psalm 118, 22 to 24. The, the same stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. On this day the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. It is time to answer the call. I read, uh, I prayed the call it a few minutes ago for the day. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call. What call are we answering? The call of Christ Jesus. And it goes on to say, to proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation. If we do that, the result will be that we in the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works. That, uh, that short prayer pretty well sums up uh, the whole uh, purpose of the whole plan of God for our lives. Uh, as we as believers would answer the call that God has put upon our heart. And that call doesn't look the same. It's unique and different and diverse for each one of us but uh, there is a calling for us there's a purpose for our lives and the result of our fulfilling that calling will be that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his work as he works in us and through us I want us to look at the passage the Old Testament reading from Nehemiah and there are some observations that I made from that passage uh, that Brian read so eloquently and pronounced all those Old Testament names much better than I could. The first thing I want to point out is at the beginning it says the people requested that Ezra read the Torah to them. It, you know, it's interesting. This is maybe one of the few places in the Old Testament where it's given a description of worship <clears throat> that begins by saying... This is something that the people requested the leadership to do. Most of the time it's the leadership, the emphasis is on the, what the actions of the leadership motivated by their own uh, choices and, and direction as they feel directed by the Spirit of God. But uh, very, very interesting to me that this starts out. It wasn't Nehemiah who told Ezra to bring the book of the law, but the people we can, we can infer by, by this that the people were spiritually hungry. They wanted to hear the word of the God. And if, if you're not sure about where Nehemiah fits into the timeline of the Old Testament, I uh, can't be real specific because I didn't look it up, but I know that it's toward the end of the story of the Old Testament. They've already been exiled in, uh, to Babylon and then returned from Babylon to rebuild the temple. And the temple has been rebuilt at this point. And uh, I think some additional time had gone on after they completed rebuilding it. And now this was like the last time of revival of the Spirit of God among them. He goes on to say that Ezra the priest read from the, the law and that by the law they mean the Torah the first five books of the Old Testament. <clears throat> so the uh, 
even the fact that they have the law to read from points to it being toward the latter end of the Old Testament story that it's been written down and collected. And it says he read to all the men and women, that's important, to all the men and women and all who could understand. So this gathering did not take place in the temple. If it had been in the temple, there would only have been men present. But it was uh, at the gate, at one of the gates around the, the city of, of Jerusalem. So he read to all who could understand, men and women and the children old enough to understand. It's, it's very detailed in the description. It says that he stood on a wooden platform that had been built for that purpose. So there had been a lot of planning and work gone into this event, this feast day, this celebration, this time of worship. <clears throat> it's, it names 13 other men that were on the platform with Ezra as he read. There was 13 other men on it. Uh, it's interesting to me <clears throat> that we see uh, this was a unified and a, a time of unity. Uh, this was a time of, of revival. It was a time where there was a consensus among the leadership. And finally it says he stood up to read from the scroll. Now when Ezra stands up to read from the scroll, all the people stand up. And then he begins, but he doesn't read yet. He's not quite ready to read. He starts by blessing God. So if you wonder why we begin church by me proclaiming, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is why. This is where the liturgy, this is one reason, one way that the liturgy developed is, is the men and women before us who studied the scriptures and wondered what worship should look like uh, saw the pattern given by the Old Testament, by this in particular this passage we start by blessing God it's biblical, it's scriptural so if somebody says to you my church only does what's in the Bible, ask them if they start by blessing God because it's right there in the scripture all the people responded so there's a response to the blessing and they lifted up their hands they were charismatics and they bowed their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. It made me ask myself, when was the last time my face was on the floor in worship? It's been a while. But biblical worship will always involve our entire bodies, I believe. It's not just something we do with our mind and will, but it's worship with our whole being. It involves all five senses. <clears throat> It goes on and lists some more men. There's 13 more names given, including and added with, quote unquote, the Levites. So that's an entire tribe of men. And these men, it says, they helped the people to understand the law. There's a lot you could unpack from this verse, but I, I just wanted to, as I thought about, wow, we have this, we have Ezra up on this stage that was built for this worship time. And he's got 13 other men seated or with him. You know, they didn't have chairs at this time in history. 
somebody, and I don't, I haven't researched this, but one teacher I read years ago said, even in the New Testament times, chairs had not been invented. That's why they reclined when they ate. But you can research that and find out if that when the chair was invented. But <laughs> it's funny when we read scriptures, we just immediately think there's this platform and these guys are seated in chairs. But they may not have had chairs then. Does it? Matter? It doesn't really matter. But however how it was, they were they were on the platform. Maybe they were sitting on the edge of it with the legs dangling. <laughs> but they were there. But there were these other men, and an entire tribe of Levites spread amongst the crowd. That was probably repeating what Ezra said and then explaining it. So. Uh, different than we do church today but there was this process and I'm thinking why why all these men up on the platform and why all these men out among the crowd and I think there's two things at least going on the men on the platform I think added to the level of of attention and trust and respect because you think about it Including Ezra, there was 14 men on that platform, and every one of those men was somebody's father, somebody's husband, somebody's son, someone's neighbor, somebody's uncle, you know, maybe somebody's plumber, who knows. What a, there were all these different relationships, so that increased the level of connectivity, the connection between the people listening and the, what was going on, so that's... It's important that I think that we search to include uh, as many men and women as possible in the order of the worship, and that way it helps increase, it brings their circle of influence in, in their lives. So anyway, very interesting. There was all these... It took, you know, it took more than just Ezra for this to happen. And the other thing is, they, they, it says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly they, see, not just Ezra, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. It's not just me and my Bible. It's not just me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's that's necessary and that's a part of our spiritual formation is that one-on-one -on -one and quiet time meditation and prayer, and it's very important. But if that's all you have, if you're if you're isolated from any other uh, believers, and you're depending solely upon your own understanding and your own perspective, your own thin ice, your own shaky ground, and you're not being scriptural and you're not being biblical. The predominant primary method of understanding and interpreting God's written word is by a consensus of devout disciples of the word. It's through it's, There's security in numbers when it comes to theology and, not, and when it comes to interpretation and, and to application. You want to you want to make sure that your sense and your understanding is not new and unique and never before thought of before. If it is, it's not 
<laughs> you're on thin ice. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> in fact, in the New Testament, in two different letters, Paul clearly instructs the readers of the letter, Second uh, Thessalonians 2.15, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2. In both of those places he clearly says to trust, to remember, to, to lean into the tradition that was taught to you orally by word of mouth. In the uh, Thessalonian place, he's, he's referring to the general tradition. In 1 Corinthians, he's talking to his teachings. Remember what I, the tradition I taught you. But in Thessalonians, he's talking about what the, the, the apostles in, in general had taught them. And again, so if you have a friend who wants to question how to read and study the Bible and where the authority lies in the church today, point him to these. If you, if you want to be biblical, you've got to look into tradition. You've got to allow the tradition of the last 2,000 years to speak into your life somehow, some way. And the safest way is where there's the biggest consensus. What is the church Catholic, the church, uh, the big picture church where there's been agreement and consensus always believed alright moving on it says this day is holy at the end of this as the people heard the word they began to weep and we don't know why they were weeping if it was conviction of their sin if it was in mourning over the past glory of the temple and now they just had this this shabby little thing they were able to put together on a on a tight budget but you know, this, the rebuilt temple was pale in comparison to Solomon's temple. <clears throat> so whatever reason, they were, they were weeping. And, and Ezra says, uh, this is not a time for weeping. This is a time for rejoicing. And um, so thankful that we have this passage to, to instruct us as what corporate worship should look like. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the, Lord, of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. So that's what worship should look like. Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to those who have nothing that's what worship looks like. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Some, some, a possible translation is, for your joy in the Lord is your strength. So either way, there's truth there. Whether its original intention was, the Lord's joy is your strength, or my joy in the Lord is my strength. They're equally true. It could be both. Finally, uh, <clears throat> our psalm for today, Psalm 19, uh, gives us the big picture of this, of this position of the Word of God and its role in our life. At first it starts off 
uh, talking about the wonder of God's creation, the sky that wordlessly pours forth God's glory. And then it goes on to talk about the law, the Torah, that is sweeter than honey. Uh, Psalm 19 begins from the ESV. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He has set them, he, in them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It is rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the first six verses is describing the beauty of creation and the revelation that is evident of there being a creator. If, if we're living in the midst of this incredible, awesome, beautiful, breathtaking creation, then it, it only follows logically that it was created that didn't just happen by circumstance. And then the psalm transitions to talk about the law, the, the, the Torah. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So we, we see uh, an affirmation. In the psalms, remember the psalms, the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, the books of wisdom, they're poetry, they're poems. They were written as poems, they were written as songs. They were written as prayers. And so when we read and interpret them, we have to interpret them with that basis understanding. It's, they're, not, they're not specifically meant to be commandments. You can't just pull one sentence out of a psalm and make it a, you know, a major uh, hinge point for some decision for how you're going to live. But it's, it's poetry and art and the meaning is in the, it's in the big picture, it's in the, uh, the emotions that we see. It, they're important, but you just have to, to understand the genre of the literature before you go about interpreting it. So anyway, we have this Old Testament passage which is so powerful, so, uh, so detailed. Uh, description of this worship service they had, this feast. Uh, and then we have the psalm that is uh, an affirmation of the beauty of the law, of the Word of God. The, uh, the, the sum of it all, though, is that the truth that is revealed through all of this, that the, the Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's revealed is more than the sum of words. Psalm 119 has 176 verses, the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm. And almost every one of them is a declaration of praise and thanksgiving for the word, for the law, for the Torah. The word of God as it had been revealed at that time. It made me wonder as we sit down to, to read the Bible or as we pay, give, our, give our attention to the 
reading of scripture that we do in our service, are we given it the proper place it should have? Do we approach it with the awe and reverence that it is due? Does it make us want to raise our hands and get down on the floor on our face as we hear the word of God? God has worked through many different people over the centuries. Think about this. This is, again, the big picture as we see it from our perspective. Starting back with Abraham, with Moses. Starting with Moses is is attributed the first five books primarily. Uh, God has worked with hundreds of men and women over the time in order that we, being born in the time and place he appointed to us, might have our Bible. The Bible is the inspired word of God, but it is not a golden tablet that dropped out of the sky. It's the product of men collecting what has been written and what has been verbally passed along by other men who lived before them. And we do believe this entire process has been guided and directed by God through the Holy Spirit so we can have absolute trust in the truth that is revealed by careful study and interpretation. But again, it's, it's not a book of magic. It's not something that we can just uh, recant words over and over and expect the words themselves to make magical things happen. They're, the words of the Bible are to point us to God and to, for our faith to be in God. If you want to get a better understanding of how this book that we have so many copies of today came to be, I encourage you to either listen to or watch Tim Mackey's The Making of the Bible. If you're into listening, there's three podcasts that start with the title, The Making of the Bible. It's part one, two, and three. They're each about an hour long, but they were all presented at one time in one setting, and then he split it up uh, to make it a podcast that you could listen to without it being three hours long. Uh, But I found there's also two different YouTube videos of two different... uh, two different times, two different locations where Tim Mackey presented this basic teaching and they're both about two hours long but I emailed you the link to it this morning Uh, so uh, I want you to consider uh, either listening to the podcast or watching the videos whichever is easier and more interesting to you Uh, and I said in my email you know it's no man has uh, cornered the truth. There's no man is going to get everything right all the time. So we need to listen as, to any teacher, including myself, especially me, dis- with discernment and ask the Holy Spirit to dis- to reveal what's true and what's solid and what's right. <clears throat> but uh, from what I've seen, uh, this guy's teaching is very uh, solid. It's very in line with even with the consensus of evangelical teaching and the understanding of scripture and it was endorsed by Canon Glenn so it's got to be good <laughs> so the gospel finally in, in finishing up the gospel passage this that we read that Deacon Steve read this morning is 
in Luke chapter 4, it's the first time that we see Jesus teaching in a public setting. And he's gone back to Nazareth, the town he grew up in. Uh, and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it's, it states that he stood up to read. I thought that was interesting. Just like Ezra stood up to read the law, he stands up to read. That was the tradition in the, in the Jewish synagogues. He, he took the role of the book of Isaiah and he read this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's the gospel. That's the word gospel. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sat down and said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We can, again, this, this passage should move us. It should be, it should inspire awe or thanksgiving or gratitude or conviction or something that should move us as we read this passage of this description of Jesus' first public teaching. A prayerful approach to reading and studying the Bible will produce a deeper hunger for the truth as it's revealed in scriptures. A prayerful approach to reading and studying the Bible will produce a deeper hunger for the truth as it is revealed in the scriptures. The understanding gained through learning the truths found in Scripture will lead to a transformation of our lives from the inside out. Light dispels darkness. Uh, Tom Mocha says, The driving force in Paul's life is to tell the truth that was told to him by Jesus himself, that the light of the truth can dispel the darkness in our souls. And you know, Paul's encounter with Christ, his initial encounter with Christ, was a blinding light. That's not metaphorical. That, that was real. That was that's what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And he wasn't the only one that saw it. His entire entourage that was traveling with him saw the light. But he was the only one that heard the voice. Uh, so the light dispels darkness. As we, as we approach the Bible, as we study Scripture, we should pray for the light and truth to come into our life and we, that the light would drive out the darkness. As we do this, the transformation within, our, within us will increase our trust in God. It will increase our desire to know God and to experience more of His presence. The true uh, New Testament revelation is not about just gaining more knowledge intellectually. It's about a transformation in your spirit and your soul and your being because the Word of God is powerful. It divides. <clears throat> Gratitude for the love of God is revealed in the Bible and experienced by the transformation that results from the formation of our lives will produce compassion for others, especially to those who are suffering. In our New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
Verse 26 jumped out at me. It says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if, if we're growing in grace and in the love of God and our, in a walk with Christ, is, we're becoming uh, more like Christ, then we're going to have a greater awareness of those who are suffering and we're going to have greater empathy and compassion for them. And at times, we're even going to suffer with them. And so, all pain is not to be avoided. Sometimes you need to experience the pain, especially of a brother or sister who is in the midst of deep darkness themselves, or deep suffering, or uh, lack. If they're, if, they're, if they're suffering due to lack, then we're not to just say, bless you, we'll pray for you and send them on their way, but we're to take action and do something to help relieve their suffering, to provide the things they're lacking in. So the prayer we prayed at the beginning concludes by saying, by praying that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works. May we leave this place with a prayer in our hearts. Lord, show us your glory that we may know and serve you with all of our heart. And uh, finally, Psalm 19:14, the last verse of the psalm we read today uh, is one of the prayers that, that are often prayed at the start of morning prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let's stand together and proclaim our common faith in the Nicene Creed as found on page 358.